So we're going to go ahead and jump into the message this morning. We're actually going to be concluding our Scent series. We're actually in week eight of our Scent series. It has been a, a, a series that I've enjoyed bringing to you and sharing with you. Acts is such a great book, and it really is um, an amazing thing when we really start to think about the ecclesia and, and how God kind of brought all these things together and, and things like that. And really, this week is really kind of an opportunity to kind of put a bow on everything. We're going to kind of try to bring it all to a conclusion. We're going to be in, in, in Acts chapter 5, pretty much. And here's the thing. There's, there's a lot of chapters left in Acts, okay? So if you are enjoying this, I would encourage you to continue studying the book of Acts to see... See kind of some of Paul's missionary journeys and things that took place a little bit further on. And because, again, it, we talked about this kind of a few weeks ago. If, if we would continue on through the book of Acts, we'd be here probably this time next year. There's so much here. But we really wanted to kind of lay the groundwork for what the ecclesia was, what God has called us to be in reference to that, and so on and so forth. So, again, this morning, really what we'd like to do is really kind of, kind of finish this all off in this section of the book of Acts. And maybe one day, I don't know, maybe we'll, we'll pick up Acts again and start with chapter 6 and continue on. Um, but this is where I felt like it would be a good place to kind of bring this to a close and, uh, and kind of close out this series that, we're, that we've been in. So before we do that, let's pray. Father, we do love you and we thank you. God, I pray that as we look at these things together, that God, you would just illuminate things in our heart through your Holy Spirit. And that, Father, you would help us to see things maybe we hadn't seen before. Maybe that you would help us understand things more about who you are, more about who you've called us to be as your church. And that, Father, you would help us to, as we look at these things, God, that you would change us to be more like you. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the last several weeks, we've kind of looked over the book of Acts. We started basically in Acts 1, and we really started looking at this, this idea of Jesus with the Great Commission in Acts 1 where basically he calls uh, his disciples to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then they were going to go and be his witnesses throughout uh, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the other ends of the earth. Then we kind of hit into Acts 2, where the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, and basically that amazing, uh, really, revival that takes place in that moment, where Peter and the 120 are up, and the Holy Spirit comes with a wind and a fire and tongues, and all these amazing things begin to happen, and they go out into the street. They don't the disciples there and the, the 120 don't stay in the upper room. They actually begin to leave and begin to go out and really begin to be the church and be that ecclesia. 3,000 people are saved when Peter begins to preach and begins to share. We got into basically Acts chapter 3 and looked at some of the things that took place there as far as one of the first miracles recorded in Acts 3 with the blind beggar there at the, the gate and Peter looking at him and having one of those, those famous quotes that a lot of us know in the Bible. That, that silver and gold we don't have, but what we do have, we give to you. And basically, um, the man gets up and he begins to walk and people are amazed. Peter and uh, John are pulled in front of the council and they basically say, hey man, what do you want us to do? We're going to share who Jesus is. We can't help but share what we've seen and what we've heard. They preach a very strong, very important message about who Jesus is, what he's done for them, what he wants to do for all of us. 
And then this basically continues on and they begin to see some persecution. Chapter 5, we kind of talked about a couple weeks ago with Ananias and Sapphira and generosity and all these things. And really it kind of brings us to where we are today. I know that's a real quick recap. If you miss any of the weeks, you can obviously go back online and watch them and, and stuff like that. But that's kind of where we are on the timeline, as it were. And so that's kind of where we're going to be picking it up. Basically, Acts 5, uh, 14 is where we're going to start. We're going to look at some scripture together. It's a little bit of scripture. It's not a ton, but I want you to stay with me because it's very important. I think as we, as we kind of finish this up, I think it's very important where we see Acts 5 kind of bring us. So that's where we'll be. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 5. We'll start with verse number 14. It'll also be up there on the screen. It says this, Yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord, crowds of both men and women. So this is, this is really exploding here. Things are going very, very well. As I was studying over the course of these uh, eight weeks and, and even before that, what we found or what I found was that basically according to a lot of theologians and, and scholars, they think that at this point there was possibly about 20 thousand on average some said maybe 15 some maybe went as high as 25 so I kind of got in the middle there so about 20,000 or so people in Jerusalem were Christians at this time okay so that matters because honestly the uh, amount of people in Jerusalem they think about this time was about 45,000 people so this is a major event this is, I mean, can you imagine, I mean, think about that for a second. Let, let, I don't know how big Broomfield is, um, maybe it's 40,000, 45, I don't know, it doesn't matter. But let's imagine that Broomfield is about the size of Jerusalem, which I think it's kind of close, about that, I don't know. But anyway, and can you imagine if basically Broomfield, Colorado, all of a sudden some major things happen and over a couple of weeks, literally almost half of the population become Christian? I mean, this is major. It's, it's, it's kind of obvious now why this, the, the, the religious leaders are really kind of losing their minds a little bit. This is not some little, little band of 120 guys. This is thousands of people now are accepting Christ and all these things. So, so this stuff is really happening. So they're really getting a little upset about this. They're really saying, hey, this is not going well. So let's kind of pick up the story now. Acts 5, 17, this is what it says. The high priest and his officials, who were Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. Okay? They're not happy about what's going on. They're not happy about basically half of Jerusalem becoming Christians. So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But the angel of the Lord came at night opened the, the gates of the jail and brought them out. And then he tells them, okay? Tells them in verse 20, go to the temple and give the people this message of life. Okay? For this morning, and it is a really important thing, and if you have your if I have a pen or you highlight things in your Bible online or whatever you have, highlight or circle or underline the words message of life. Message of life. We're going to come back to that, but underline message of life. So now we get to verse 21. So at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple as they were told and immediately began teaching. Okay. Now, in the Bible, we see several things that take place here. This is one of those that I, I kind of like to call with a little smirk and a little grin. This is a sitcom moment in the Bible. Okay. You're going to see in a moment why I call these sitcom moments. 
So if you know, Peter and the apostles have been brought in, they've been put in jail, and an angel shows up, opens the gate, and they walk out, and the, gate, he, the angel says, listen, don't just go home, don't just run away, I want you to go right back to where you were in the temple and begin to preach once again this message of life. So they don't wait around. They don't wait till lunchtime or evening. It says that at daybreak, as soon as the sun is up, they are right back where they were. They're right back at the temple and they're right back there preaching and sharing what the Lord has asked them to share. So let's go ahead and pick it up again. This is again our sitcom moment, Acts 5, 21, the second part of that. This is what it says. When the high priest and his officials arrived, they convened the high council, the full assembly of the elders of Israel. Then they sent for the apostles to be brought from the jail for trial. Okay? So they all get together. Like, okay, we're going to bring them in. We're going to talk about this. We're going to get this figured out. Okay? 22. But when the temple guards went to the jail, the men were gone. So they returned to the council and reported, the jail was securely locked with the guards standing outside. But when we opened the gates, no one was there. Look at verse 24. It says, when the captain of the guard, temple guard and the leading priest heard, priest, priest heard this, they were perplexed, wondering where it would all end. Then someone arrived with startling news. The men you put in jail are standing in the temple teaching the people. Okay? So this is our sitcom moment. Okay? I, I, just, I can just see this on, on a sitcom or whatever. So here they are. We got them. Oh, yeah. We got them exactly where we want them. They're in jail. All right. Bring them in. And the guard just walks in. And, and why they always do this, I don't know. But I just have this opinion that there, or at least this thought, that at least maybe because I watched a lot of Disney movies when I was a kid, the cartoons. But the guard was going to be really, really dumb. You know? I don't know. That's not fair to guards. I know. But so he walks in. He's like, uh, so, uh. You know those guys? Yeah, what about them? They're gone. <laughs> what do you mean they're gone? I mean, they're, they're gone. There's go we had guards, everything was locked, and they're just gone. And you just imagine these priests and these, tip these Sadducees just these going, wait, wait, wait a minute, where are they? And then just because the timing is just so perfect, then someone else comes running in and goes, hey, I found them. Oh, good. And they're probably thinking, oh, great, this is right. Maybe they got moved in the night. Maybe they're in another jail cell. Oh, no, they're at the temple and they're preaching. They're doing exactly what they weren't supposed to do. And, and I love the wording of this in the scriptures. It's basically, they just have this, it's like, when is all this going to end? I mean, you ever been there in life where it's just like, I, I just, you just almost seem like, I give up. I, I don't know what to do here. And so they basically go, okay, what, now what? Now what? So let's continue now. They talk a little bit, but just to kind of get through the story, Acts 5, 33, starting, with verse, uh, starting there, and then we'll continue on. It says, when they heard this, when they heard that they're back at the temple, the high council was furious and decided to kill them. Okay, so now this is like, okay, we know how this is going to end now. We're just going to kill these guys. We're tired of dealing with this. We're tired of playing nice. We're tired of telling them what to do one thing, and they keep doing another. We're done here. We're done here. Okay, but then we see something very interesting, and this is, I think, a really appropriate way to, again, kind of bring this series to a close. Look what we see here in verse number 34 and continuing on. But one member, a Pharisee named Gamil, who was an expert in religious law and respected by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men be sent outside the council chamber for a while. Okay, so they... 
again, they, they bring them after they have they've run back to the temple. They do bring them back and they have a conversation with them. We kind of skip that. 35. Then he said to his colleagues, men of Israel, take care what you're planning to do to these men. Some time ago, there was that fellow, Thaddeus, who pretended to be someone great. Now listen here, really pay attention to this, okay? Because this is, this, is, this is some good stuff, okay? Who pretended to be something great, someone great. About 400 others joined him, but he was killed and all of his followers went their various ways. The whole movement, the whole movement came to nothing. Remember, the ecclesia is a movement of people, okay? Look what he's saying here. The whole movement came to nothing. After him, at the time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him, but he was killed too, and all of his followers were scattered. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, about that concept of scattering. Are we going to settle or are we going to scatter? So he says, all his followers scattered. Let's continue on. Verse 38. So my advice is, leave these men alone. Let them go. If they are planning and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. But look at verse 39. But if it's from God, you will not be able to overthrow them you may even find yourselves fighting against God. Man, think about what he has just prophesied over the church, over what we are doing here. He basically says this in so many words. He basically says, listen, listen, leave him alone because I got example after example after example of guys coming who basically said they were something and they weren't. And you know what? Some, they scattered. It ended. It's interesting here that he specifically mentions a gentleman who led people who was killed and his followers scattered. And he basically says this. He's like, listen, if this is nothing, it will come to nothing. But isn't it interesting that here we are over 2,000 years later, it didn't come to nothing. It didn't come to nothing. It has only gotten stronger. Yes, there are times and there have been seasons where things have not gone well. But at the same time, we are here today we are here today and we could basically, if we could go back and call back to him and say, listen, you're right. If it was nothing, if it would come to nothing, you're right. Leave him alone because if it is of God, you won't be able to stop it. I'm reminded of the scripture where Jesus says that this is my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's exciting because as we look at this, as we move into now the actual looking in the book of Acts, as we get into to verse number, uh, chapter 6, they begin to choose men to serve. Chapter 7, Stephen addresses the council. Chapter 8, Stephen is killed and all these sort of things take place. I believe chapter 9, if I'm not mistaken, is when Paul begin, or Saul begins to go out to, to take out the Christians and he has an experience with God on the road to Damascus and everything changes in his life. Then he begins 
begins to go out and the church begins to expand and you begin to see Paul's missionary journeys one, two, and three. All these big things begin to happen. Why? Simple. Because God was behind it. Because God said, I am going to make sure that my church goes forward. That my church will accomplish what I have called them to accomplish. I love that he said that. I love that, that this, this man just looked at it so logically and so uh, prophetically in a way and basically said, listen, if this isn't of God, it'll fizzle out. But if it is of God, there is nothing you're going to be able to do. And in fact, he says, wait one step further. In fact, if you try, you'll be working literally against God. So what is this? What, 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 what does this really look like? What, what do we need to, to get forward? What, what do we need to take out of this scripture and basically out of this series and, and I want to focus in, and I had you highlight it or underline it, but remember we, we go back to Acts in the fifth chapter after the angels have released them. They tell them to go back to the temple and give the people something. Give the people something, okay? Unfortunately, a lot of times in our lives and in churches, we, we, we don't have anything to give to people. You go, and I'm not talking about a free lunch, and I'm not talking about a, 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 well, a, a free gift if you come to our church. I'm talking about something that's going to be life-altering and life-changing. The angel called it this message of life. If you look at the remainder of the book of Acts, the majority of it is that thing going forward. It is individuals saying, I'm going to take this message of life and I'm going to make a difference with it. And so as we conclude, as we conclude this book of Acts, as we as a church desire to be this ecclesia, we too need to heed the words of the angel. We need to go to our temples or our world or other things that we see, or our targets or our Walmarts or our businesses or our schools, and we need to give people this message of life. But I also want to look at some things a little bit more. Because I think this message of light, we can kind of define it. We can illustrate it. We can, we can, there, are, there are images that we can help us to understand. So not only for us to understand what this message of life is, but also how we can share with others. I want to look at basically three illustrations, three ways that the message of life can be illustrated from the scriptures. So to help us, I want to get some tools into your toolbox to help you when you share and you give this message of life in ways that people can understand. The first one, this message of life can be illustrated by light versus darkness. Light versus darkness. First John, the first chapter, look at it with me. First John 1, 5 through 7. This is John speaking. He says, this is the message we heard, or John writing, excuse me. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So here's the thing too before we continue on. This idea of light and darkness, it also kind of brings these images of purity and evil, goodness or evil or things like that, okay? So when, when we see John here saying that God is light, even though we do know that scripture says that he is the light of the world and so on and so forth, it's greater than that. It's showing the idea of righteousness versus non-righteousness, goodness versus evil. All these types of things are kind of wrapped up in this idea of lightness versus darkness. So here we go. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, 
but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. This is a good passage. This is an important passage because here's what I found sometimes in our lives is we think that we can... Listen, I use the word verses on purpose. Lightness and darkness do not get along, okay? It's real easy to show that, okay? Simple. We'll go to a closet, I'll put you in it, and I'll turn the lights off and it will be dark. If I take a flashlight and give it to you and turn the flashlight on, what will happen to at least a portion of the darkness? It goes. Darkness and light don't, you know, you know we, we use the word oil and water, you know. They don't mix. And so in this, we tend to live lives at times that basically say, you know what? I can live in the light like God is in the light, but I can hold on to these areas of darkness in my life that, that, that I, I kind of want, I like. I, I like to do this. I, I like to kind of have this place or authority in my life over this area or whatever. And this, what John is saying here is like, no, you're deceiving yourself. You're deceiving yourself. You can't do that. You can't live. He says, you are lying if you say you have fellowship with God, but I'll go on living in spiritual darkness. He says, we're not practicing the truth. You know, and, and, and he goes on, even in verse 7, he goes on, he says, listen, if, if, if you're living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. You know, I found in a lot of times what causes issues in relationships and fellowship with each other, it's the dark areas of our life that we don't want to give up. Listen, it's amazing. When I do something silly or wrong in my marriage, you know what it always has to do with? A dark area of my life. A pride area of my life. An area that says, I know better. Or an area that says, I don't have to be kind or, or gentle. I can be upset or frustrated or take things out on people that's not fair to. Those are dark areas of my life and they affect my relationships. A lot of times I have people come to me and they say, oh, my relationships aren't working. My relationships are just not having these issues. And when we begin to dive into it, it becomes very, very clear. There are areas of darkness. That God wants to bring forth into his marvelous light. The great thing about light versus dark is this. Dark loses. You realize that? Dark loses every time. Yeah. You you turn on a light, guess what darkness does? It goes. Why does darkness exist? Simple. Darkness exists because there's no light. Not the other way around. We want to live in light. We want to be light. We want to help people understand that they don't have to live in spiritual darkness. It's one of these messages of life that we can bring people because unfortunately a lot of people are walking around in darkness. When I was a kid, this is one of those stories that that honestly I, I am blown away that I didn't die, that others didn't die, and that we were allowed to do it, okay? I'm, just, I'm just, just telling you right out front, okay? Because this is one of those things that like, I think back and I go, what was our leaders thinking, okay? What was my youth pastor thinking? But we did this all the time. And again, as far as I know, no one passed away, okay? But we would go out into a field. What, what, in the fall time, we would go out and uh, there was a family in our church that had land. 
And this is back in Missouri, you know, and so this is like a big old open field. Okay, got that? Just a big old open field. It was basically a field to, for cows to graze in. Okay, so it wasn't used for farming and things like that. It was just an open field. And we would go out there and we'd have a hayride in the fall. And, you know, we have a big old bonfire and all this sort of stuff. But the highlight of this night was we were going to play Capture the Flag. Okay? Now, if you don't know what Capture the Flag is, I can't give you a full rundown. But basically think of it this way. Okay? Think of about the size of a football field with a middle line in the middle. Okay? Your job is to go into the enemy territory which inside of it had basically a glow stick. That was the flag of a certain color. In that, and somewhere in there, there was a circle, which they had their glow stick. If you got into the circle, you were safe. You could stay in the circle as long as you wanted. Okay? The goal was to get their flag stick, or glow stick, across the middle line first. And they had a jail, and so if you got caught you would go to jail. And so if you went through there, you could either go and maybe if you got into the jail, you could take one or two people with you or you could try to get their flags, so on and so forth. Now, here's how you got caught because it was the early 90s and I guess we weren't real smart. I don't know. You tackle the person. Okay? This wasn't two-hand touch. It wasn't, hey, I see you. It was laying someone out as hard as you could to tackle them and that's how you did it. Now, let me go one step further. This was played about 11 o'clock at night in a field away from the city. It was really, really dark. And we loved it. And I remember one time, man, I'm crawling on the ground. I mean, I'm, I probably crawled through cow patties and all. I mean, I'm just, doesn't matter. I got to get the flag. I got to get the flag. And I'm crawling and doing all these sort of things. And so anyway, it was always hysterical when somebody grabbed the flag. But, uh, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But I, I finally, I got to the circle. Made it safe. Survived. And now I'm waiting for my moment. And they're just watching me. You know, they're just watching me. Because they know in any moment I could break out towards the line and all this sort of stuff. So I'm just waiting for that right moment. Waiting. Waiting. Well, all of a sudden there's a commotion over to the side. And I'm like, this is my chance. I'm going to be the hero. I'm going to win this for my team. And I take off. And this is what was funny about it. It's so dark, you can't see anything. Literally, you cannot see the, basically, the, I mean, you could maybe see the hand right here. But if you started going out here, that, this, that's it. And, all, and it was funny, when anybody got the flag, all you could see was this glow stick kind of going up and down, you know, like this. And it's just a, a glow stick floating in the air. And so I'm just going, I'm, I'm, I'm going as fast as I possibly can. I'm almost there. I'm almost there. I'm almost there. And all of a sudden, I had a guy behind me. I don't know how he saw it. I'm just going to assume it was the Holy Spirit keeping me alive. Okay, that was my, that's my assumption. I hear the word, cut! Well, I know what that means. It means I cannot continue to go straight. And so without hesitation, I basically pivot and I cut this way. And guess what? I make it across the line. And man, we're excited. We're having a good old time. There was a youth sponsor at the time. His name was Doug Sargent. I'll never forget Doug. Doug was not like me, meaning Doug was a big guy. Doug comes walking straight up to me. And he just got this look on his face like, oh, man, you almost went and saw Jesus tonight. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And he says, you remember how you were running as fast as you could go? I said, yeah. 
He goes, you remember when you heard the word cut? I said, yeah. He said, if you had taken one more step, I was right there. I mean, you want to talk about me? I mean, rock, unmovable, I mean, boom. That was what was awaiting for me. I, I don't know who yelled cut. Again, maybe it was the Lord. I have no idea. But somehow I missed Doug. But it was close. And I remember kids, man, they were, again, I don't know how we all survived. Kids were running into each other. Kids were running into things. The bottom line is this. Darkness is dark, if you haven't noticed. And it can be real dark. And the problem with running around in darkness is a lot of times we're going to run into some stuff and some stuff is really going to lay us out. The message of life is saying you don't have to do that. If, you, if you, this is in your notes, check it out. Instead of running through the darkness, we get to walk down a path that is lit and it is lit by the presence of the Lord himself. Amen. That is so incredible. You get that? Listen, you understand, listen, there's so much anger in our world right now. There's so much rage in our world right now. And it's for a lot of different reasons. But I got a feeling one of them is there are people that are walking around in darkness that are sick and tired of running into trees and dugs. That is not fun. It's not fun. You were never created to run through the darkness. You were created to walk hand in hand with the light. And we need to bring that message of life to people that says, you know what? You don't have to walk in darkness anymore. You don't have to keep running into things that you don't see. And instead, we can let the Lord's presence, the Lord's word guide us and lead us. Number two, the second thing, this message can, of life can be illustrated by broad versus narrow. Broad versus narrow. Matthew 7, 13. Jesus is really wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. Listen to what he says. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. I had you underline something earlier. I want you to underline something here in Matthew 7. It's important that you see this. Matthew 7 verse 13. I want you to underline or circle the word choose. You choose your path. Okay. One of the lies of this culture one of the lies of the enemy that he has been pounding into our Western understanding of life for the last 50 years is this concept that somehow, some way, you don't get to choose. Something has happened. Something, the, way, the, the family you were born into, the social situation you were born into, the color of your skin, whatever it may be, you somehow do not have a choice of what path you walk. And look, I understand that there are certain challenges that come depending on who your parents are and what you're used to and the generational things and all those things. I'm not doubting those things. But in the most important thing, in the thing that you get to choose, whether you're going to walk a broad path or a narrow path, you choose and no one else chooses for you. 
I wish I could choose for people. I would love to be able to walk up to people and say, guess what? I'm going to make this choice for you. I know that sometimes the narrow road is hard. I know sometimes it's hard to find it. But listen, it leads to life. Where the other is literally, as it says in Scripture here in this translation, a highway to hell. Basically to destruction. To death. But we get to choose. One of the messages of life we have to help people understand is simple. You have to make your own choice of what road you're going to follow. Because there's a, a, a narrow way and there's a broad way. And it's interesting, the words of Jesus here. In a lot of ways, the broad highway is very easy to see, which would make complete sense. Okay? Make complete sense. Why? Because highways are big. They're large. They're broad. They're, they're long. You can see miles from... But you know what? He says the narrow road is difficult and few ever find it. Sometimes it takes some time to find the narrow road. You say, Aaron, well, what does that mean? You remember we talked about earlier, we talked about this idea of darkness and light? You know how hard it is to find a path in darkness? Listen, if we went out hiking tonight, and I said, listen, we're going to go out for this hike, and, 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 but we're going to hike in the dark, and I said, find this path, you'd have a really hard time, wouldn't you? You'd have a really hard time. How do you find the path? It's real simple. You make sure you have some light. You have light because you're with the Father. You have light because you've accepted Him in. You have light because you're reading God's word, which is a light into our path. But there's others that are still walking in darkness. And for them, it's very easy to find the broad road. To bring people the message of, light, of life, we need to bring the lightness to them to help them find the path. Help them to find the path. So this message of life can be illustrated by broad versus narrow. The last one, the last one. This message of life can be illustrated by death versus life. And I know this one seems to be a little, um, well, obvious. But I think it's so important. And I love this scripture. This is such a powerful group of scriptures. And I would encourage you that if you have not done a deep dive into Ephesians, the second chapter, do so. There is so much good stuff that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. But look here with me. Ephesians 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. Look at what it says here. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Now, we have to stop here to remember who he is writing to. He's writing to believers. Okay, This is the church in Ephesus. These are not unbelievers. He's basically saying, listen, all of you, meaning in, in turn, all of us, we were once dead. We were once spiritually dead. We were disobedient and, and, and had many, many sins. Now let's continue. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Man, we could do a whole series on just verses 1 and 2. Some powerful stuff there, but we don't. We're not doing that. Let's continue on. All of us used to live that way. All of us used to live that way. Following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. 
by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. And thank goodness Paul continues with verse number four. Here it is. But God is so rich in mercy. God is so rich in mercy. And He loves us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, He gave us life when He raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Verse 6, For He raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. We were all dead. Every single one of us. The only reason that we have life and have life today in the spiritual realm is because of what Jesus has done for you and for me. A lot of times we can mess this up as Christians. We can so easily forget what we have done in the past. And listen, I'm not saying we bring it up and it's forgiven and it's done. But we remember it not so that we can bring it up and try to look at, oh, how bad we are. We remember it because it reminds us and it will remind others of the great richness of God's mercy and His great love towards us. I don't know about you, but I've, I've talked to people and shared Christ and they have this idea that basically, you know what, I'm just too bad. I just, I've done too much. I've, I'm, basically, here's what they're saying in a lot of ways. Let's, let's paraphrase it. They're basically saying, I'm too dead for Christ to bring forth in my life, life. And what is beautiful about God's greatness and His mercy and His great love is really, in a lot of ways, the greater the death, the greater the sinner, the greater the mercy, the greater the grace, the greater it is extended to them. I've often heard this illustration, and I think it's very telling and it's very important to get. It's this concept of, of you know, these people. And I remember hearing songs and, and hearing this type of phraseology of this idea of being down in the muck and the mire. You heard that term before? And when I think of muck and mire, I think of just almost like a muddy pit. You know what I mean? And people feel like, oh, I'm just down in this muddy pit. And, you know, God's grace, God's mercy, God's love. It doesn't matter how deep that pit is. The rope of his mercy, grace, and love is always deep enough to get to where you are. Always deep enough. And you know what? People need to remember when you bring forth this message of life, it's okay to bring up the fact that, you know what? I was once dead. I was once living and doing these types of things. But you know what? When life came, everything changed. The great thing about this, this illustration of death versus life is, listen, you can't be dead and be alive at the same time. There has to be some major changes that take place in your body to make sure that you're alive. Spiritually speaking, it's the same way. 
Spiritually speaking, there is life that God brings forth when he has done what he has done because of what Jesus has done for us. And when we see the difference between death and life, there should be obvious, easy, identifiable things. But the bottom line is, is we were all sinners. We were all in need of Jesus. Every single one of us were dead. And we sometimes need to remember that. Again, we don't remember it so we beat ourselves up over it. We remember it because it's a perfect illustration of what God will do for you and for me, no matter who you are. You see, here's the thing. A lot of people think that, there's, that, that basically Scripture teaches this and, and it doesn't. The, the Scripture teaches, you know, there's some good people and there's some bad people. And you know what, if you do A, B, C, and D, you're bad and you're gone and you're lost. And you know what, a, you know, all these other people, you know, they, they don't do a B, B, a, B, a, a, B, and C. They're the good folk. And then over here, oh, we got the bad folk. You realize that's not what Scripture teaches us about ourselves and about our nature? It's in your notes. The Bible doesn't teach us there are good people and bad people. It teaches us that there are bad people that can be forgiven by a very good God. That's how it works. Amen. That's how it happens. This idea, well, if I'm just good enough, then it'll be okay. No, nobody's good enough. We're all dead in our sin, every single one of us. It's not about how well I can do it or, or how much I can do it the right way or versus the wrong way. And, and somehow if, there's a, you know, if it evens out or if it's just a little bit better good than bad, then I'll be okay. No, 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 no. The Bible teaches that your sin, our falling short, is just down here in the good. It just doesn't matter. There are no good versus bad. We're all dead in our sin, but we have a loving, merciful good God who has made a way for us. That's how it happens. You want to bring a message of life to people? Help them to see that no matter how dead they are, Jesus, because of what he did, because of the great mercy of God and his great love for them, they can be made alive again. This message of life that we begin to see begins to spread in the book of Acts. It begins to move in the book of Acts. It begins to manifest itself in the book of Acts. But to close this series out, I think we should go to the end. I know that we skipped a lot of, of Acts. We really kind of looked at the beginning of the ecclesia and, and those things, but I want you to look how Acts ends. And I've mentioned, I believe, this before, but this is in Acts 28. It won't be on the screen. I'm going to read it to you. We're going to look at Acts 28, starting with verse number 28. And we're going to finish out the book. Listen to what it says. Paul is speaking. So I want you to know that this salvation, this message of life from God, has been offered to the Gentiles, and they will accept it. Verse 30 and 31. For the next two years, Paul lived in Rome at his own expense. He welcomed all who visited him, boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God, the message of life, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one tried to stop him. 
Now, I don't know about you, but let's turn the page if you have your onion skin and, and, and okay, Romans 1. Isn't it interesting? Like in so many other books, there's like amen. There's like this clear conclusion, you know, like thinking back to high school, you know, and I have my four-paragraph theme or five-paragraph theme or whatever, or my, you know, have my nice closing line that I always would work on to make sure it was good because I wanted a good grade. Acts doesn't have that. Acts just kind of, quote-unquote, stops. And then the next page is Romans 1. Why is that? Well, I believe a lot of theologians and a lot of theologists or people that study theology in this, and, and, and they've basically said the reason it ends this way, because Acts isn't, being, isn't, isn't finished being written yet. Acts is still going on. Is it being recorded? Not in, this, not in the canon of Scripture, no. But the book of Acts is still ongoing. It would be foolish to end this series with basically saying, okay, now the series and the book of Acts is over. You see, if you look at the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Disciples, the Acts of the followers of Jesus, I have a simple question for you that we all need to answer, myself included. As the book of Acts continues in your life, what could be written about what you have done for Jesus? You go, well, Aaron, I, I, I've never been on a missionary journey. It's okay. Aaron, I've, 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 never, I've, I've never seen a, 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 a blind beggar or a lame beggar. I haven't had the opportunity to, to ask God to heal him. I, it's okay, too. It's okay, too. What has God called you to do as the ecclesia? What has God personally said? What are your acts for me? Now again, we're not saved by those acts. We respond to the salvation and the grace of God because of those things. We act. Okay? So we don't, we don't, we don't, don't, don't miss the point here. We don't continue the book of Acts to earn something. We continue the book of Acts because what we have been given and because of God's great love. So for our church, for this ecclesia, for your family, for you as an individual. What, what acts does God want you to do? Well, let me give you a quick one, a real easy one as we close. Something that we're all called to that goes all the way back to Acts 1. Go. Bring this message of life to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of of the earth. We're all called to do that. We're all called to bring this message of life to the people we come in contact with. I believe and I know that God has great acts for every single one of us to accomplish for Him. I believe and I know that God has great acts for this church and this family of believers, for this ecclesia to accomplish for Him. 
And can I just be honest? Time is running out. And it's time that our acts stop being just something we read about and something that could be written about. Father, we come to you right now. And Father, again, we, we, could, we could bend in acts for months upon months upon months. There's so much here, just like all of your word. And so, Father, as we tried to kind of put a bow on this and kind of, kind of, kind of done that, Father, it just, this message of life just stood out so strongly. This message of life that, that thousands of years ago, a, a, a man said simply, listen, if this message of life is nothing, if this message of life is not life-changing and world-changing, it'll fizzle out. It'll go away. It'll be because God doesn't want it to be. But here we are thousands of years later, and what we have seen is not the fizzling out of the word and the message of life. No, instead, we've seen it literally go around our world and given every individual a choice. Father, I don't know about anybody else here, but there is something so encouraging about reading what a man said thousands of years ago about my faith and about my Jesus, and basically saying, if it was nothing, it'll be nothing. Guess what? He was right, because it wasn't nothing. Those men, literally, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through their witness and their testimony, later on in the book of Acts, it says they literally turned the world upside down. Why? Because it was more than just a man. Because Jesus was more than just a good teacher that spoke things that sounded okay. Oh boy, yeah, we should live this way. No, 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 no. It's because Jesus was exactly who he said he was. He was your son. And because of that truth, you have taken that message, Father, all around the world. Because, why? Because of your great mercy and your love for all of us. So, Father, if we haven't, Father, I pray that even now we would begin to accept that grace and that love and that mercy. Father, for those that may be online right now that say, you know what, I... I I, I, I am dead. I am dead in my sin. I am dead in, in, in the actions that I've taken. I am, I am not living the way that God would want me to live, that even for those that are here or even online, that they would in this moment begin to just call out to you. That they would say, you know, Father, I'm, I am a sinner. I, I have fallen short. I have not met the standard that you have set. And Father, I acknowledge that I need a Savior. And I believe that Savior is Jesus. I believe that He came and He died 
for me. And on the third day, he rose and he is my savior and he is my Lord. And I believe those things in my heart and I confess those things with my mouth. And I know that the word says that if I do that, I will be saved. I'll go from death into life. But Father, there's others of us who have somehow felt like in Acts, 29, or Acts 28, 31, that the book closed and the Acts ceased. And that is not what has happened. You have called all of us to continue writing the book of Acts. There is a part of me that believes one day in eternity there will be books filled with the acts of individuals in this church, both in the past, in the present, and in the future. Things that they have done. And there will be people, and they will go to those books, and they will open them up, and they'll go, oh my goodness, can you, did you see what this individual did for Jesus? Why? Because they understood that they had a message of life, and they went and they shared it with people. They were a movement of believers. They were not a kircha. They were an ecclesia for Jesus. And Father, that's what you've called us all to do. It's what you called us all to be. And so, Father, I pray that never again would we see this place as just a church. We would see it as an ecclesia. We would see it as a movement of people that are moving to bring the message of life to every individual we come in contact with. But Father, just like the early disciples, we need your help to accomplish this mission. So we look to you. We look to your Holy Spirit to help us to do that. Father, we love you. We thank you. You're so good. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, God. Well, again, I want to thank you for being here. For those that are online, hey, we love you. We miss you. We hope that you're doing well. We hope to see you soon. For everybody that's here, remember, we're going to spend a little bit of time kind of fellowshipping, and then we're going to head over to our picnic and have a great time there. But again, thanks for being here. I hope you have an unbelievably wonderful week and enjoy some time as we spend some time together fellowshipping to really enjoy that time together. So have a great week. We'll see you at the picnic. We'll see you all, all those that are online. We'll see you soon. Have a great week.